Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. One of the challenges that uh, kids are facing and having to deal with, Ben McCauley is the manager of Foundry Kelowna, the Canadian Mental Health Association's Kelowna Youth and Families Mental Health and Substance Use uh, Abuse Clinic. Um, ben, thank you very much for coming on the program. How are you? Well, thanks for having me, Roy. I'm doing well. So how, is, how significant is the school environment to the mental health of students, and is it more impactful based on age? Uh, well, I, I think it's, um, it's a critical uh, institution that, um, that, you know, we didn't really uh, understand fully until it was taken away on a, on a uh, individual level. And, um, of course, younger kids uh, do well to, to be in the home and a stable environment, but then, you know, it, it's normal part of development to expand your circle uh, socially and academically, obviously, and uh, in building that structure as well, where there's learning happening outside of the home. Yeah, it's, in, um, and, it's interesting. Broadening that. Yeah, it's interesting you say that we weren't really aware, I think, necessarily aware of just how important that environment is to kids who are growing up because it was taken for granted. It was there every day. You went to school, maybe a belly ached about going to school. I know I certainly did. But uh, but now it's it's something that, that kids need. So when it comes to the ages, do you find younger or, or, or maybe teenagers are having more difficulty, or is it right across the board? I think it's uh, it's more impactful at the uh, the young level because the impact that it has on the family is more um, more detrimental. And so you look at uh, you know a, a young family or a family with kids, young kids in the school. Um, it, it impacts the entire structure of how a family operates when there's alternative care needed, when a parent needs to be working from home, uh, when they need to continue to do their own job and and you know help teach this curriculum uh, that's been set out in the, in the online scenarios um, if they're not in school at all. That uh, you know how do you occupy a, a five or six year old and stimulate them? as well as working at home. So so those are, I think, more impactful at a younger age, mm-hmm. whereas there's a little bit more uh, self-sufficiency at the at the uh, teenage level. Okay. We, by the way, folks, we're going to be talking to uh, the president of the British Columbia Teachers Federation in just a few minutes. Terry Mooring will be with us, and then we'll have uh, Dr. Martha Fulford with us, infectious diseases specialist. And uh, Dr. Fulford uh, questions uh, closing schools at all. Now, British Columbia has essentially not closed schools uh, since 2020, since the spring of 2020. There is a delay, there has been a delay of one week, and they go back to school in B.C. tomorrow. What sorts of things do you see, Ben? What sorts of manifestations would you see that lead you to believe or, or, or motivate you to engage with students on the fact that they can't go to school? What, 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 are, they, what are they telling you? What are you seeing? Well, I think, um, you know, number one, um, which is a, a huge factor in learning, is the, the social aspect. Um, young people are, uh, in a lot of cases, being more attached to the parents and, and adapting to being in the home um, more often than the past. And so now we look at, um, you know, removing or limiting the social circle. But on top of that, there's the anxiety of, um, you know, kind of a fear of, other people and that other people and interacting with them could be dangerous to your own health. 
And so while that might not be something that's a permanent fixture that parents can look at, young people are, are getting the message, you know, kids are getting the message. It's not safe to be close to someone. It's not safe to share with people uh, in close proximity. And so, so those things are, uh, you know, if, if we're teaching them that, you know, that, that's what their world is. Um, and, and there's a little bit of uncertainty and, and, and fear at the base of that. So uh, that is manifested in a number of other ways. And, and you know, but the, the thing is, kids are, uh, they're adapting. Um, they learn quickly, they soak up new information, and it just becomes their normal. And so, you know, they'll, they'll bring in issues that, um, you know, that are fairly normal issues or not seemingly that impactful to them, but, uh, you know, because they've adapted so quickly. Mm-hmm. That's very worrisome, though, that, uh, and I hadn't thought of this, but it's, you know, now you mentioned it, it's, it's obvious uh, they would have concern about social interaction, and particularly the younger ones who are, for the very first time in their lives, being exposed to the school environment. And if that's taken away from them, and if there's a fear message that goes along with that, that this person or any person you're interacting with could be passing along COVID to you, that is not a positive message for a young person who's growing up. And it, and, and if, if, if it's not addressed, that could follow a, someone for life. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> You know, it's a it's a tenet of uh, of social development, particularly in, in the Western world. Is you know we we learn a lot from facial features. We learn a lot from um, connection to others in a physical sense, and and uh, more than just you know a virtual setting. We we crave human interaction, and and so I think the near future, um, but mid to long term, also you know how how much of a delay is this going to cause? That's mm-hmm. assuming that at some point. We get back to a bit more of a normal, a normal school setting. Yeah. So, what advice would you have for parents listening right now across the country on the network? What advice would you have for parents who are listening to what you just said and saying, "That's my kid"? What would you say to them? Well, I think looking at stuff that we we typically would, you know, assume would happen outside of the home, like uh, French friendships being built and. And um, you know, the face-to-face interactions are, are at all time importance for parents. Is to spend as much time as you can. And I, I I've got a, two young boys of my own, and working and and uh, trying to keep all of that uh, balanced out as well. But the more time you can spend face-to-face and and have that interpersonal learning outside of academic is 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 crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having conversations, even they don't have to be uh, doom and gloom, they can be, you know, positive, looking at what, what are the benefits that have come from this. Maybe it's we've got more time as a family. Maybe it's um, we've learned about what's more important in life. Um, you know, the, but nothing replaces that time you can have face-to-face with someone. Yeah. Uh, of course, you, you know, learn to have fun in this as well and, and be creative and right. uh, I think um, be easy on yourself. Ben, I appreciate so people in the Kelowna area can get in touch if there is a concern that they have about their kids or the kids themselves can get in touch with Foundry Kelowna, correct? That's right, yeah. They can give us a call at 236-420-2803 and uh, talk to Family Navigation or or have the young people uh, come in themselves from 12 to 24 for counseling or whatever other needs they might The delay of children returning to school and the impact it has on uh, students, on teachers, on parents. In British Columbia, the schools reopen tomorrow, and we're joined by the president of the British Columbia Teachers Federation, Terry Mooring. Ms. Mooring, thank you for coming back. How are you? 
Thanks, Roy. I'm well, and thanks for having me. Yeah, this, uh, you know, how are you isn't a throwaway question anymore, is it? No, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, we're in a very concerning environment right now with the rapid spread of Omicron, and so I know that everyone is, you know, taking their health very seriously, monitoring uh, their health, and, you know, going to work um, when you are ill or experiencing any symptoms is, is definitely no longer an option. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Keeping classrooms open has been an uneven exercise across Canada during the pandemic. Are you generally satisfied with the approach of the British Columbia government on this issue? Classrooms uh, being closed last week, is, I think it's the first time that's happened in almost two years, isn't it? Yeah, and it was important that um, last week uh, was taken by districts in order to do it, a number of things. Um, there are some additional safety measures in place, but they're the same safety measures that were in place last school year, so really nothing new and not enough, that's for sure. But we also um, wanted to make sure that staffing levels were um, ascertained during this week and also, unfortunately, planning for what we call functional closures, and that's when schools have to close because of lack of staffing, uh, and we're concerned that's going to happen due to illness. So that planning was important. And the, I think the problem for teachers is that while we're planning for functional closures, unfortunately, and we've been told that they're likely to happen, and we believe that to be the case, there still isn't enough being done. And there are measures that could be taken that are simple to take, um, that would not be incredibly costly, uh, in the short term at least, um, and would provide certainly, I think, families and teachers with more ease about returning on Monday. You know, as it is, there's a lot of uh, rightful concern about the safety of schools right now. Do you consider the school environment to be one of uh, you know, a dangerous environment as far as the spread of COVID is concerned because we hear counter positions on that and from infectious diseases specialists. What's your thinking on that? Well, the fact is in BC, we just don't know because we haven't had schools in session with Omicron um, being such a, you know, su- such a, accounting for so many cases uh, in BC and in, in fact across Canada. And so I know that in some jurisdictions they have uh, had schools go back. Uh, I think Saskatchewan is one, um, but we haven't. And so it's still unknown. We know that case counts are very unreliable right now. We know that we're, when we return, uh, there will be no um, contact tracing um, and testing sites are being overwhelmed. Um, rapid testing isn't yet available for um, education workers or children, unfortunately, in BC. Um, government has said that, and, and the provincial health office has said they will be available, but we don't know when. We don't know what the plan will be around rapid testing, so there's lots of un- unanswered questions there. Is there cooperation, is there dialogue, meaningful cooperation and meaningful dialogue between public health and the provincial government and the Teachers Federation? Dr. Bonnie Henry, you're Chief Public Health Officer, has said classrooms are not a setting of high risk because of air filtration improvement, and the province didn't spend some $300 million in air filtration systems since 2020. What's your, what's your take on that? Well, for, first of all, yes, there are meetings happening. Um, the BCTF takes part in Ministry Steering Committee meetings, but those are just consultative. Certainly, you know, um, we are giving advice, but it isn't, isn't always taken. And uh, we've had a, a long-standing issue now with, uh, quite frankly, the Provincial Health Office and, and the BCCDC about um, them understanding the school environment um, because we have large classes, um, we have children, you know, mixing in classrooms, 
We have, uh, it's very difficult to, to physically distance, uh, and, and in fact, there is no uh, intent to do that with the safety protocols that are in place. And school is one environment children and, and educational workers are in, but they have lives outside of school, so it's not like it's a closed or contained environment. And we, as I say, have not been in session with the Omicron, um, you know, uh, spreading through our communities at the rate it is. And so there's still a lot of unknowns right now, um, and I think that some of the decision-making, and we've been frustrated about this, quite frankly, is based on the Delta variant or original COVID, and we just don't seem to be as flexible here or nimble about changing um, safety precautions as we would like to see. We'd like to see much more of a preventative approach in BC than we're seeing. Do you get a sense then that uh, teachers and the Teachers Federation are not being listened to? Well, I think we're being listened to, but certainly what we're advocating for right now is not in place. And so we did advocate for many, many months for masking. And finally, masking was, you know, it's a provincial health order now. Um, But at this point with Omicron, we think N95s would be uh, reasonable, especially for teachers and students that are medically vulnerable. Um, But we think that anyone that wants to wear N95 should have it supplied. We think teachers should be fast-tracked for booster shots. And that would be, you know, could be very easily done. And you make the point about ventilation systems. While it's true an investment was made, we still have half of the districts in the province that don't have adequate filters in their, in their ventilation systems for many different reasons, including that their ventilation systems are old. And so we've been asking for some stopgap measures around ventilation, including HEPA filters in classrooms. Um, I'll add everything that I've just talked about um, is in place in other jurisdictions where BC has been very reluctant to do those things. We'd also like to see a campaign around uh, school-aged children getting vaccinated. I think what we're seeing in BC and and across Canada is is some more reluctance on behalf of families to get their younger children vaccinated. That is something our vaccination rates in BC for 5 to 11-year-olds are exceedingly low. So we'd like to see a really targeted campaign around educating families about the importance of vaccinations. We'll we'll have to do a follow-up interview, and I have an idea that I want to run by you. We'll do that during the week next week. We spoke with Terry Mooring, the president of the BC Teachers Federation, and we spoke as well with Ben McCauley, who's the manager of Foundry Kelowna, Canadian Mental Health Association's Kelowna Youth and Families Mental Health and Substance Use Clinic about kids not going to school. And they're not going to school or haven't been going to school, depending on where you are in Canada, at different rates because of COVID. In B.C., the schools have essentially not been closed since 2020. There was a delay for one week, but they go back to school in British Columbia uh, tomorrow. Other provinces, it's a little bit different. Uh, Although Alberta, Manitoba, Quebec, and Nova Scotia, the kids do go back tomorrow. Ontario will be um, the 17th at the earliest. Mr. Ford, of course, talked about exploding. So with us now to speak about this, uh, this issue, and I want to really hear her position, she's been with us before, is Dr. Martha Fulford, Infectious Diseases Specialist, Associate Professor at McMaster University, and Chief of Medicine at the McMaster University Medical Center in Hamilton, Ontario. Dr. Fulford, how are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm well, and uh, I'm, I'm going to stop asking people that <laughs> eventually. I can't stop just yet. I think it's important that I ask that. Anyway, you challenge the closing of the classrooms because of COVID. What's the most fundamental argument against closing the schools? Children don't disappear off the face of the earth if they're not in school. 
And so when we uh, are looking at any kind of an intervention, there are several issues to look at. One is, uh, well, what's the objective in this case? Uh, presumably, people are worried about COVID. And I say presumably because at no point, despite some of the hysteria on social media and unfortunately some of our media, we have never actually seen schools uh, be hotbeds of secondary transmission. They have reflected what's going on in the community. And the fact, for example, that all these numbers increased with with, uh, our current situation during the vacation, it tells you that, I mean, children don't go into a black hole if they're not at school. So closing schools doesn't make any difference in in terms of transmission, but it dramatically harms our children. And two years into this, the fact that in a place like Ontario, we're still doing something as regressive as closing schools uh, is really quite extraordinary. We have two years of accumulated data. We have studies. We have serological studies. We have tests. I mean, it's been unequivocally shown that schools can be kept open safely while also uh, managing what's going on in the community. And also, it's not just Canada. I mean, we could, for example, look at uh, all of Scandinavia and say, so why was Scandinavia able to keep all its schools open this entire time? What happened to the kids in Scandinavia? Well, nothing bad and lots of good things because, of course, their education was interrupted. They were allowed to socialize. They weren't isolated. They were allowed to take part in all their sports. And they don't have all the mandates we have here. And so two years into this, uh, we really should be asking some really, really hard-pointed questions regarding why we are doing uh, what we're doing, which, as I'm going to use the word, I mean, it's inexcusable, it's quite regressive, and why we're pretending that something is inherently different in our schools compared to the vast majority of, of the rest of the world at this point. Why do you think it's going on? Because uh, I've heard you say, uh, I think you said it on this program, that COVID has been around long enough that we've been able to ascertain what the long-term ad- uh, effects are, like the adverse effects. I mean, I wish I knew. Uh, what we have at the moment is... Uh, a lot of misinformation about uh, the, the dangers of COVID. And there was mis- there was and continues to be misinformation on the side of minimizing the impact of COVID. There has been misinformation on, um, you know, some of the, the comments made about the vaccines, uh, as in completely negating their benefit. But there has also been misinformation on the other side in terms of exaggerating the harms of COVID and, and exaggerating uh, the impact of our measures. And we've never called it out. We've never said to somebody who, for example, uh, starts uh, claiming on Twitter or whatever that children, uh, 35% of children will get long COVID. I mean, this is arrant nonsense. Uh, and we know this. We have very good studies that have shown that, that, that these risks are exceedingly low. There are some people who will get post-infectious syndromes, no doubt about that. But when you think specifically of children, we simply don't have objective data. And so when somebody goes on social media or goes on normal media and starts making these really quite preposterous claims about how harmful it all is, we should actually start challenging that. I think part of the problem is people are terrified, and we've done an incredibly poor job of trying to give a balanced message. The people who are at risk of progression to severe disease are are older adults, people who have certain um, associated health risks, and that part of our population 
benefit significantly from choosing be vaccinated because we know that that reduces the risk of hospitalization. And at a time when we have a lot of virus circulating, as would be true in any viral season, vulnerable people might do well to avoid really crowded conditions. But we also know that the risk to younger adults and to children from the virus, and particularly from Omicron, which is uh, in, in some way, I mean, it's, it's very mild compared to some of the, the original strains we were dealing with, that, that our children, there may be the exception, but, but the preponderance of everything showing us that isn't they're not at risk. And I think that we don't challenge the misinformation catastrophizing everything. And so, is, so we, we allow that to go unchallenged. And is, there a, back. is there mixed messaging that's coming out of the medical profession on this that is really Very causing so. confusion for yes. parents and maybe for teachers as well, maybe even for politicians who should know better than, yes. well, they should be working harder maybe. But is there is there mixed messaging? A hundred percent there's mixed messaging. And it would be really nice, I think, is if we reconvened or we convened or we got together uh, I don't know what you could call it, like a COVID recovery group or or uh, post-pandemic group where we have all these diverse voices actually speaking together face-to-face or if you don't want to go face-to-face, at least you know, within within the same group so that these aren't debates happening on social media, which is really no place whatsoever to have a conversation. Okay, so like if, if, Dr. Fulford, you're saying yeah. that there's no reason then to close schools. I don't know. I okay. do not believe there was any reason whatsoever. So then I do have this question. We are seeing these variants arrive. Correct. And we don't know what the variants are capable of or what their, 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 their threat level is. Is it possible that there's going to be a variant that will arrive that will be sufficiently threatening that the schools should be closed? And if that happens, uh, do we go back to what you said before? And that is we, COVID's been around long enough that we can... We have a pretty good idea of what it's going to do, and we'll have time to react. Correct. Uh, and we, we have seasonal respiratory viruses every single year. We all know that. And really, if you look at the numbers right now, uh, and you look at the numbers being admitted to hospital, and you compare it to the total numbers we've had admitted to hospital over the last 10 years, to be honest, the numbers aren't that different than they've been in the last 10 years. I mean, the, the, the data is available online. People can look at what the normal admission and surges that we have every year in our hospitals. The, the big struggle we have right now, of course, is that we have a really a, a decimated workforce. But, but that, that and, and oddly enough, closing schools makes that worse because, again, the parents who are healthcare workers can't, I mean, these things are all in, intimately linked. So any policy we have or any measures that we have now should be what I've said before is total harm minimization. The single most important thing for our children is allowing them to be children. Okay, that now I... Go to school, socialize. We know that the teachers have all had the opportunity to be vaccinated so that their risk of progression severe disease is actually dramatically reduced. The vaccines work very well to do that. And, and that's sort of the pragmatic uh, moving forward. Yes, if we start to see a different variant, which I think every year we're going to sort of be dealing with, with, yeah, with, with coronaviruses circulating, we can revisit the issue. But we can't continually shut down society, close our schools, destroy our businesses for the possibility of something that might or might not occur in the future. Okay, I just spoke with, I don't know if you heard, but I spoke with the uh, president of the British Columbia Teachers Federation. Uh, about their concerns, or at least the teachers' concerns. I know the Federation's concerns. I know that you support what British Columbia has done largely. 
Mm-hmm. Um, is, there, is there a model anywhere in this country where it's being done the way it should be done, or is British Columbia that example? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. I, it, the infrastructure of our schools uh, and some of the buildings is very poor. And so if somebody is saying, could we do better? Could we have better facilities? Could we do better with, with that infrastructure? I think the answer is yes. But is that a reason not to to hold our children hostage and not reopen schools? No. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's an interesting argument. If I had to say, uh, if I had to look at where it's been done the best, it's actually Scandinavia. Uh, it's it's the same virus. It's a similar schooling system. Uh, it's a very pragmatic approach. But yes, I think probably in, within Canada, British Columbia has managed to uh, keep the schools open okay. the longest with the least uh, restrictions on our children. Over the last couple of decades, we've really tried to keep demand and supply as close to each other as possible in order to decrease costs. And I think as a result, with this wave of the pandemic and increased hospitalization, we are having to pull resources from one place to another. And as a result, we have canceled tens of thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of surgeries across the country. All right, let's start with this, please, because you just heard uh, Dr. LaFontaine, the president-elect of the CMA, Hundreds of thousands of surgeries have been canceled. That alone uh, points to the stress that the healthcare system is under. Can you give us a just because we hear politicians talk about it, and we we hear references to the stress the system is under. Can you give us a sense, uh, Dr. Bogosh, of what you see as far as a stress system is concerned? And is Omicron one of those um, transient appearances that's going to be here and gone fairly shortly? Well, I hope it's here and gone very shortly because it's really messing things up significantly right now. Those stresses are real. Those are not exaggerated. If you walk into just about any hospital in the country and you peek into the emergency department, the ICU, or the wards, you will see short staffing. You will see uh, nurses called into work that should not be there because they're working overtime. You'll see fewer nurses working, fewer allied health care. The doctors are getting it as well. We're all being called in to do more and more because uh, there's more patients and fewer people working. It is a real and significant challenge. What, what's your observation and your experience, Dr. Kinderchuk? Well, I think what we're seeing, unfortunately, right now is the, the worst case scenario that we, we've seen for the pandemic, right? So we, we are not only seeing the stress on the healthcare system, we're also seeing those secondary effects um, on other systems because the unfortunate reality is you have a lot of people that are unfortunately sick all at the same time. So you start to see the, you know, the ramifications in terms of commerce, in terms of industry, um, and, and all around the country. So you know, I think that's one of the things that maybe we weren't necessarily prepared for, was this idea that not only would healthcare be stressed, but now all of our protective services, all those other services also would be stressed at the same time. Mm-hmm. So let, let me do this, Dr. Kendrachuk, if you don't mind. Sometimes it's a good idea to go back to the beginning. We, we get f- certain way down the road and we forget where we started and what caused the problem and what the problem, how large the problem is now. So you are the Canada Research Chair in Molecular Pathogens of Emerging and Reemerging Viruses, Assistant Professor, Viral Pathogens in the Department of Medical Microbiology at the University of Manitoba. So you know about viruses. You were also the uh, diagnostic lead in Liberia during the West Africa Ebola epidemic, and I can't think of anything more terrifying than that. So within the context of, uh, of viruses that appear and threaten us, 
where does COVID actually fit and how is it developing, you know, emerging and reemerging? Are we seeing this? Well, what, what are we looking at today? Yeah, you know, I think this is a good question, right? I mean, first of all, we have to look back at the fact that, you know, for coronaviruses, we have had other coronaviruses that have uh, emerged over time. And, and we have one, quite frankly, that is that is thought to have maybe caused a, a prior pandemic in, in the 1800s. Um, so we, we don't have a lot beyond SARS and MERS to, to tell us and inform us what what is the trajectory for, uh, for, for SARS-CoV-2. I think what we have to appreciate, though, is that, listen, and quite simply, viruses do what viruses do, and they do it very well. So th- there is no blueprint or timeline for, for what this virus is going to do. The, I think the, the simplest answer is uh, the more opportunity we give it to change, the more that it is going to change. And unfortunately, those changes are, are random. The mutations are random. Um, once in a while, you get the right fit of mutations that, that change what the, what the virus is doing and the behaviors of it. So, you know, when, when we talk about the, the progression of where this is going, um, you know, we're, we're focused on Omicron right now. We're talking about what will happen with Omicron in the next you know, few weeks and few months. To me, the bigger question is, what's the next variant? Because we, we can't predict what that's going to look like. So our best defense is to try and get transmission uh, reduced across the globe so that we're not facing these questions uh, for, uh, for the foreseeable future. So there's no a reasonable expectation that if Omicron is milder than Delta, and it appears to be, uh, there's no reasonable expectation that the next one's going to be milder than Omicron. Is that correct? Well, that's the question, right? Is that when we look at this from from the behavior of the virus, the question now is saying, okay, well, what it, to push Omicron out? What set of behaviors would you need in terms of the next variant that emerged to do that and, and to push away from that? That's the big question. We we don't have an idea of what the upper limit is in terms of transmissibility, in terms of immune evasion, in terms of virulence. So we we don't know. I think we can make some guesses, but. At, at, Quite frankly, those are guesses. And I think, again, we get back to this situation of saying, let's try and not find out. Um, it's difficult to say that because it's a monumental uh, task to do it, but that is our, our, our best defense. Okay, Dr. Bogosh, want to add to that? I mean, I just love when you hear a scientist communicate uncertainty and use the terms, I don't know, because that tells you they know what they're talking about. It really does. And, you know, when you hear people speak confidently on this manner, a big red flag should go up. What we do know is that the more uh, we leave the world unvaccinated, the higher the probability that another variant will emerge. Um, and, uh, and, and the more community-level protection we get through vaccination or, of course, recovery from infection, the better off we're going to be when the next variant rolls through town. Th- this whole issue of hundreds of thousands of surgeries being cancelled People not being able to go and see um, their doctors. Uh, Dr. Kinderchuk, you know, I just read a story in Manitoba, getting to see an ophthalmologist, extremely difficult. This puts uh, the entire healthcare system on the back foot. How are we going to get out of this? Uh, I'm sure you've talked about it among yourselves as doctors. How do we get out of this? Either of you, please. Yeah, I'll start. This is tough. Um, You know, the canceled surgeries are, are a big deal. Uh, stating the obvious. And, you know, sometimes we call them elective surgeries. There's nothing elective about them. These are hip surgeries and vision surgeries and cancer surgeries. So uh, many of us are calling them scheduled surgeries, not elective surgeries. Some are more urgent than others, but none of them are elective. Um, You know, and these aren't the result of lockdowns. These are a result of a healthcare system that's stretched 
beyond capacity. Some people erroneously say there's a lockdown, your surgery is canceled. No, your healthcare system is overwhelmed, your surgery is canceled. That's why you need all hands on deck and all resources to care for the influx of patients with an acute medical illness, namely COVID, uh, and, and you have to divert resources to help care for them. It's as simple as that. When you look at other parts of the world, you say, well, how come we can't be like Florida? Or how come we can't be like other, you know, Texas? And the answer is, listen, we can do whatever we want, but everything comes at a cost. And we don't have the health system capacity like they do. If you opened up and you let this virus run amok, as other places have done, you know, you're going to have, you know, just stating the obvious, you have more cases, more deaths, more hospitalizations, and our hospital system cannot uh, accommodate that. It just can't. We just don't have enough beds or resources to accommodate the level of virus transmission. I have no problem with people making the choice, saying, you know what, we want more restrictions or fewer restrictions. That's, you know, in a democratic society, the the people should choose to what extent they, they want this. But, you know, it's not even, I don't even know if we have the choice here because our healthcare system would get, well, it already is getting walloped, and it would continue to get walloped if uh, if we chose to take a, a laissez-faire pathway. Okay, let me just uh, ask you this question then, and I'll start with you, uh, Dr. Kinderchuk, on this. Different countries have different approaches. We see NFL stadiums filled with unmasked Americans. We see that today. Meanwhile, in Canada, our, our arenas are not accommodating fans at the moment. In the U.K., Sir Andrew Pollard, who's the head of their National Immunization Board, Uh, says you can't vaccinate the world every six months, and he argues against more boosters until there's more evidence, and he adds the worst of the pandemic is definitely behind us and the society must reopen fully sooner than later. And that uh, is from the UK. Uh, Canada, with our province-by-province approach, is again different in in the United States. Uh, And I just want to address this, Dr. Bogosh. Americans have a greater per-population-staffed ICU bed reality. Their health care system is is very different to ours. So back to you, Dr. Kendrick, and then you, Dr. Bogosh. How do we deal with – I mean, is there a better model? Is there an option available to us to do it better and, and, and more quickly in this country? Or are we just doing the best we can? Well, I think this is going to probably be, you know, five to ten years of, of very thorough investigation to figure out what worked, what did not work, and, and what were the preceding events prior to the pandemic that mm-hmm. precipitated or exacerbated that the problems that, that we've seen. And certainly, listen, I, I hope that the worst of the pandemic is behind us, but I also want to say that when we talk about the worst of the pandemic being behind us, are we talking about us nationally and regionally, or are we talking about us globally? Because those two things often are conflated, and there are two div- very, very different realities. And I yeah. think we, we have to appreciate that, listen, we're, we're in this until globally we get this pandemic under control, because yeah. ultimately it is going to come back and it, it is going to have ramifications for, for all of us if we do not get it under control. I, I think as well, uh, Dr. Bogosh, that those of us who don't have a scientific uh, background, we are hearing so many messages that are coming our way from so many different sources that we start to cherry pick what sounds best and most believable and doable to us. Yeah, it's, it's the, you know, science by Twitter era. Uh, and it's really challenging because, you know, some people like to think of the medical or scientific or public health community as one being. And that's nothing could be further from the truth. You have multitude of voices and some are uh, obviously more credible than others um but yeah but uh, even when you have multiple people look at the same information the same data you often get two completely different analyses 
and even policies that are very different that stem from the same data. You know, welcome to life and welcome to science. It's messy. Having said that, the, you know, I think we also have to take a very pragmatic approach as well. Like, what are the resources we have available to us right now? How can we best use them and how can we, you know, make, you know, proceed forward in Canada with the fewest deaths, the fewest people in hospital, the greatest degree of openness, the greatest degree of freedom, and maximize everything possible. Now, obviously, this isn't a perfect scenario, and, and, and we do have limited resources, and we've been smacked several times in each wave. You know, I don't have a crystal ball. I do agree with a lot of what Dr. Pollard says. Uh, in a perfect world, and who knows, like, don't hold me to this. Please don't hold me to this. But, you know, after this wave, it's pretty clear that everyone is either going to be uh, vaccinated and boosted or infected and recovered or both and you know exposed and the level of community protection through immunity either through vaccination infection or both is going to be massive so hopefully and you know COVID is not going anywhere we all know that so hopefully when the, the variant du jour rolls through town next time we have such a degree of community level protection it just doesn't disrupt us the same degree it has in the past but simultaneous with that yeah, we have to invest in our healthcare so that even if there are a greater rise in hospitalizations, you can't, you just can't keep shutting down the economy. You can't keep shutting down. It's like, this is completely not sustainable over the long term. You know, I get it in the first wave, but after that, there, we, we should have been done with this. Yeah, we should have. We have one minute left. So uh, 30 seconds to uh, each of you on this. The federal health minister started musing about provinces introducing uh, mandatory uh, you know, mandates for vaccines. Do you believe in that? Is uh, Dr. Kentrichuk, is, is, that, is that the way to go? Well, listen, it, it spurs people to get vaccinated. There's no question uh, about that. There's also another side of this, and certainly in Manitoba, we're getting hit with that, where we have uh, certainly groups of people that are, are, are concerned and still hesitant and reluctant to get vaccinated. So we also don't want to alienate people. It's difficult. Uh, we, we've got to figure out a way to get through this as quickly as possible. And, and if we've got to introduce mandates to try and get that suppressed, uh, then, then we, we need to throw it as, uh, out as one of the tools we have. About 20 seconds, uh, Dr. Bogosh, mandates. I'll be clear. No, I don't like that approach. I appreciate there's a lot of debate within the general public, the medical and scientific community. I'm not a fan. I prefer carrots, not sticks. Okay, our good friend, and we mean this, we love having him on the program, Professor Eric Kam, Professor of Macroeconomics at Ryerson University, is with us as we begin 2022. Professor Kam, good to have you with us. How are you today? Well, Happy New Year, Roy. Happy New Year to all the listeners. And I'm doing relatively well for a house that is just coming out of having three out of four people COVID positive. But on the whole, I can't complain. And I have to say, Roy, I really enjoyed your bumper coming into this segment where you uh, commented on people seeing eye to eye with you. Very few people see eye to eye with me, but that's because I'm five foot five and they see well over my head. (laughs) You are something else. Uh, what do you make of this, uh, this? I wonder how many people got what I was doing. I'm not suggesting they don't, but when, the, when I say the average passenger car emits 4.6 tons of GHG per year and one Challenger 650 jet discharges 29 metric tons during one Tofino round-trip flight from Ottawa, you know who I'm talking about, right? Well, I do. I do. You're recommending that people fly to do their shopping. But you you also have to remember the number one rule when you teach a university class is make sure you do your math and your example long before you get to your lecture hall, because it's really hard to think on your feet. But yes, of course, I knew where you were going. And 
you were making a good point that really leads well into where we are with COVID right now, which is, is you've got to really be able to um, dissolve the hype and the fear factor from the from the nuggets that are the truth. So yes, I knew exactly where you yeah, were going. I, was, and I thought it was a good example. I was getting at the Prime Minister's trip to Tofino, as you know. I and they know. do fly the oh, Challenger wow. 650s. Anyway, what do you make of the StatScan job numbers earlier this week? And just for the for our listeners, employment rose by 55,000. This is StatsCan in December. And then they go on with highlights here. Full-time employment rose by 123,000, while part-time employment declined by 68,000. But here, Professor Cam, is the one that I, that I highlighted. Public sector employment rose by 32,000, while there was little change in the number of private sector employees and the number of self-employed workers. That speaks volumes, does it not? It spe- and it speaks everything. And you know, it's funny. I don't know if you or the listeners remember, but you might, that we talked about this a year ago. And what really scared me, you said to me, what scares you the most right now as we head into 2021? And I said the fact that the public sector is growing quickly and the private sector isn't. And that is a horrible recipe for any capitalist economy. In fact, it's antithetical for where you want to see the system to go. It means that the government isn't throwing money at it, it's not growing. And so, first of all, you have to remember that Statistics Canada, they do very good work and they are very adept at getting statistics. But you got to remember that the people at StatsCan have bosses and they have to they have to appease those bosses. So StatsCan always has to give you at least a relatively rosy look at the economy. And so when you read that, you're right to be skeptical, but they were hoping to effectively slip Sally through the proverbial alley and impress you with their employment statistics. But I'm glad that you saw that there is um, there's some gray under all of those clouds. Yeah. Can I get you just a little closer to your microphone? Yeah, I can try my best. I'm trying not to swallow it. Okay. Yeah, it just just sounds like a little echoey. So if we can we can work on that a bit, that'd be great. How do you see our economy, our economic reality on this ninth day of January as we stare down the road to the end of December? Where would you put us and what are the what are the highlights and what are the concerns? I was thinking about this last night as I watched your Dallas Cowboys stride into the playoffs on another huge victory. Go Cowboys. The real the, the I would use the term and I use it um, as it's meant. It is a tightrope right now, Roy. I think we are on a real tightrope. The the recovery was really far more robust than we'd anticipated if you look at last year, right? Reinforcing the massive spending boost that was served, interest rates were kept at basically zero. And so as we headed into 2022, there was reason to be positive. There was reason to feel like we can pull back on stimulus and we can let the economy settle to a more normal range. Now, of course, the exception to that is inflation. And it's the inflation data that really corrects uh, the risk here because people thought we were going to see a spike, a very short-term spike, and that spike is, is not. It is it's prolonged, and we see prices going up. Now, the last thing I want to say about this is that everything that I have just said was not predicated on a lockdown. But before that we headed into another lockdown, I could say to you, you know what? As long as the Bank of Canada works to get inflation under control, then the employment numbers and the spending numbers and the GDP numbers were starting to look 
pretty good. And I, and I like the way that we were, the public sector was balancing, pulling back on the stimulus and letting the economy do its job. But Roy, as you know, we're back in a lockdown situation. And so sadly, it pains me as an economist to say that all bets are off right now. All bets are off because we don't know what's going to happen to spending again. The government very quietly this week brought back supports to business, which they may or may not feel is imperative. But I could sit here now and tell you every statistic that I uncovered over the last few days about where the economy is going. But frankly, they're meaningless until I know when the government's going to let the economy function again. So it's a tightrope and it's a very thin one. You just mentioned that uh, your family had been struggling with uh, COVID, and you did tweet that it wasn't a um, Omicron was not a pleasant experience. How did you do? Are you okay? Oh well, thanks for asking. Yeah, we had so my my seven and a half year old son had symptoms that lasted for a day. My symptoms were more severe and lasted for three days. My wife was the sickest. She had even more severe symptoms that lasted for about five days. So um, first of all, thank heaven, nobody had to go to the hospital. Nobody had to go to the ICU. But on the whole, anybody who's had the flu knows that flu symptoms aren't fun. So while I consider myself lucky that we came through it on the other side and we're all fine and healthy, um, the people that say, uh, the symptoms are mild or you hardly experience them, them. I'm sure you've met people where that's true. But in my particular household case, especially for my wife and I, it was not a pleasant experience. Well, I'm glad you're better. And uh, hopefully you have some immunity. We're going to be talking about that in the next hour, next half hour, actually, with Dr. Jason Kendrachuk from the University of Manitoba and Dr. Isaac Bogosh from the University of Toronto. So when we talk about the economy, and you said it's not, it's impossible to really uh, draw a roadmap at this point because there are still too many potholes on that highway. My metaphors are pretty bad. But anyway, what is it going to take to be able to give you a sense of what's coming our way? Because right now we're dealing with the supply chain. We're dealing, again, with lockdowns. We're dealing with restrictions to do shopping, small businesses hurting. And each time this happens, it's a ma- it, it does become a major hiccup. What's it going to take for you to be able to look down the road and say, I have a pretty good idea what's going to happen here? Actually, it's, it's not a hard question to answer. The answer is, when are you going to open up the economy? I mean, as much as you never know with 100% certainty what's going to happen, when the economy is open, then we're able to take a look back and look at statistics and then make predictions looking forward, be it consumption, be it investment, be it government spending, be it exports and imports. When you close the economy and you shut it down, all bets are off because nobody knows where anything is going. I mean, we were expected to have supply chain issues um, become lessened this year. Yeah, we know we're... that the Bank of Canada has said that the interest rates are going to go up this year. But as soon as you close down the economy, everything just stops. All predictions stop. The Bank of Canada says now we don't know what we're doing. Supply chain, we're back into a mess. And so we've got to know when are we going to allow the economy to be fully open before we can even address the problems, Roy. And that's the frustrating part. I am clear on this issue. I would not and never have shut down the economy because I think that it puts us in such a behind the eight ball position that when it does get opened again, and now for the second time, and I know Mr. Giroux is out there dying somewhere, what is it going to take to get back to pre-pandemic levels? We've just made it even harder on ourselves. 
Yeah, the supply chain issue is massive. And I don't think most people recognize or realize because they're not in the game every day. I'm not either, but I'm exposed to the information on a daily basis. I don't think most people recognize just how significantly out of whack, out of sync the supply chain is. And it's not just one chain. There are many, many chains. And they're all, well, not all of them, but most of them are being interrupted. And to get them going again is going to be a challenge. Now, Mr. Ron Foxcroft, who was on my good friend was on this program um, just a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about uh, the issue of the uh, the trucking industry. And between five and thirty percent of trucks in this country, in Canada, five to thirty percent of eighteen wheelers that should be out delivering because everything that you have in your home has been delivered by a truck. Five to thirty percent of them are on sitting in yards idle now because they can't get drivers. Now, we also have, on the 15th of January, there's going to be the vaccine mandate for cross-border truckers, and a percentage of those truckers are saying, I'm not going to have a vaccine, so they're not going to be able to drive. That will throw another monkey wrench into the supply chain. So you tell me, Dr. Cam, can we overemphasize, is it possible even to overemphasize the seriousness of the supply chain issue? No, absolutely not. And I have two stories about that. Number one is I come from a family that was in the potato business. And I learned as a little boy growing up from my grandfather and many of his friends that if you enjoy something in your daily life, it came in by a truck. And so we cannot, you cannot ignore what's going on with the trucking industry because that is the lifeblood, the lifeblood of our trade and our economy, number one. Number two, to say that people are underestimating the supply chain, well, that just means they're not waiting for something because I have friends that are waiting for furniture, that are waiting for cars, that are waiting for any number of durables and non-durable goods. And they've been told now that that wait can be up to a year. So I find it very hard, bordering on impossible, to say that the supply chain issues are not a mess. And then even even if they freed up the supply chain tomorrow, which is absolutely impossible, what are they going to do about the labor shortage in truck drivers? I mean, this shutting of the economy, Roy, was such a bad idea. And it it literally brought me to tears when I heard that we were going to do it again. And there were, as Colonel David Redmond has told us on a number of occasions on this program, and he was the director of emergency planning, emergency management in the province of Alberta, there were pandemic plans in place that had been approved by the provinces and the federal government that were reviewed on on a regular basis, I think every three to five years, and they were updated as necessary. And then when the pandemic arrived, those plans were shoved aside. We are where we are. It's very concerning. What would you say to the to the family, to the to the single Canadian who's saying, what do, I, what do I do? I mean, I know you're not a financial planner on an individual basis, but are we all in a, just a, in a holding pattern, wait and see and hope for the best? Terribly, we are in a holding pattern. And the only thing that I would tell Joe or Joan Q public right now, frankly, is not to worry about gross domestic product. This is something that's way above their concerns. If they're within $200 of insolvency, their concern is their house, their family, their children, their livelihood, and to be very, very conservative with your spending. And I don't care if you hear on the news that if spending drops, it's going to be harmful to the economy. If the government really gave a damn about that, they wouldn't have closed the economy. So people have to be super careful and super conservative in their spending and save as much as they can for the rainy day that now isn't that far away. Yeah, and you're referencing the uh, the polling that was done in, well, it's been done every year, and the ones we were talking about and speaking with Daryl Bricker at Ipsos about, and he'll be with us later on the program today, but it was 52% of Canadians were within $200 of not being able to pay their monthly bills, and that is a 
that at that time was particularly frightening. It's even more so uh, at at this time. What are you paying attention to? What does Professor Cam pay attention to? What are the what are the signposts that you look for for the economy? You know, I wish I could sit here again. It's like how we started this conversation. I wish I could tell you I'm watching our spending. I'm watching our interest rate. I'm watching the supply chain. I'm watching household debt, but I'm not. All I'm watching is the TV every single day to find out when are they going to open the economy. I'm going to use a ridiculous example. In the middle of a pandemic, can you imagine if they said we're going to shut hospitals and have a reset? No, there would there would be there. I mean, there'd be rioting in the streets. But you know what? People have livelihoods. People have to support their families and they and they're trying to to just make ends meet at the hardest time ever. And they basically shut down the economy. That is in an economic sense, the same as shutting down a hospital during a pandemic. So there's only one thing I'm looking at, Roy. I'm asking the federal government and the provincial government to please listen and give people a chance to survive, open up the economy. Anything else right now, anything uh, else is putting a Band-Aid on a broken yeah, arm. And don't expect that the money the federal government or the provincial governments provide during a pandemic to be there without responsibility to pay it back later. If we run $300 billion, de- or, yeah, yeah, $300 billion deficits, that money is going to have to be repaid, as will the trillion-dollar national debt. We're going to talk about the mood in uh, in this country. And according to Ipsos, um, in 2021, so last year, see, I can do this. I can do these complex um, uh, deductive reasoning exercises. According to Ipsos, in 2021, in their year-end polling, most Canadians suggested they were largely okay with their lives and prospects, but food and housing costs rose significantly and are among the greatest concerns of Canadians as far as prosperity is concerned. 32% of us say the coronavirus is one of the greatest issues facing Canada and Canadians. At the same time, climate change skepticism continues to grow. So what does Daryl Bricker, the president and CEO of Ipsos, believe will be the most pressing and salient issues for Canada and Canadians this year and what's in store beyond this year. That's where Daryl's book Next comes in. And I've said this many times. I'll say it again. Next belongs in every home in this country. And it would be a great book for you all to read as a family and 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 just evaluate, look and see where this country's going. It's an amazing book. Mr. Bricker, how are you? Happy New Year. I'm very well, Roy. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for the kind words. Well, yeah, you're more than welcome. And, uh, you know, I go back and I, l- I look at your book and I, I read certain parts of it, sections of it, because I read it all. And it's so helpful to me in what I do. It also keeps me aware of, of, uh, of, of, of where we're going as a country. And, and uh, I really appreciate the fact that you wrote it. Uh, Daryl, you and your friend John Ibbotson uh, wrote a commentary that appears in the Globe and Mail. The global population is growing older faster than anyone expected. Canada must be ready. Uh, you talk about population in next as well. Would you break down the essentials for us in, in this, in this, uh, in this op-ed? What are, you, what are you saying? Where are we? What's happening? Well, my, one of my favorite quotes of all time is a quote from Mark Twain. It's, uh, you know, it, it's not that what uh, you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that's wrong. It gets you into trouble. <laughs> and what most people think about what the future is going to look like relative to the population is basically incorrect. Um, what's happened in Canada, um, we'll just talk about Canada for a moment, is that basically re- uh, human reproduction has collapsed. We've just recorded our lowest birth rate in Canadian history last year at 1.4. 
So uh, typically a birth rate, um, what we call a normal birth rate, is one in which replaces the population that's dying. So it usually has to be uh, 2.1, which is each woman having, uh, who is able to have kids in a country having at least 2.1 during her lifetime. We're more than half a kid short. So without immigration, uh, our population would likely be tipping into a situation where another 30-some-odd countries are in the world today, which is shrinking. But not only is the population shrinking, and I know that people, there's a lot of people, because I hear this commentary all the time, are out there celebrating, well, there's too many people on the face of the planet. This is the, the assumption that is being made here is that this, the structure of the smaller population is going to be the same as it is today. It will not. It will be much, much older. By 2030, everybody, the entire baby boom in the world is going to be 65 years of age or older. By 2030, in eight, in eight years. So, yes, the population is going to shrink, but it's also going to be concentrated in the much older groups of the population. And as we get into the mid part of the century, the entire global population is going to start to decline. So that's where we're headed. That's, it really is. A, it's fascinating. And it's concerning at the same time. I mean, if we're if, if this is going on, and it is, um, it, it, it many questions are being asked about the future and uh, what the future holds for us. And in uh, in next, you actually talk about the perennials, and mm-hmm. th- those are the the boomers, right? People who are over when you wrote the book at the time over fifty five. Now they've grown a couple of years older. Talk to us about the perennials, please. Well, they've got all the money. And What's wrong with that? Of our pop- What's wrong with that, Daryl? No, well, it's, it, it is what it is. I don't put a value judgment on it. Okay. As I, as I say, uh, and that's whenever I'm asked these questions, it's it's not a good thing, it's not a bad thing, but it's an important thing uh, to to just understand that the the older population has all the money. Uh, they overwhelmingly are more likely to vote than the younger population. Yeah. So not they not only control the economic power, they control the political power. And that they're, they're, the size of that group of the population is just going to continue to grow. In fact, the Canadian population is growing, as I said before, as a result of immigration, but also because people uh, aren't dying as fast as they used to. I was just looking at the statistics on this uh, uh, today. So back in the 1920s, the average Canadian lived to the age of 57. Today, the average Canadian lives to the age of 82. Say so that again, please. In, in the 1920s, the average Canadian lived to the age of 57. Oh. So 100 years ago. Yeah. In, in a century, we've, we've, we've increased human life in Canada by, um, to, to the age of 82, from 57, in almost 30 years. That's it's amazing. incredible. In China, in, in, 20, in, in 1940, the average person in China lived to the age of 40, or 1950, to the age of, of 40. Today, they live to the age of 78. They've doubled human life in China. That is just, uh, that's staggering. That but we, we don't take this stuff into account, Roy. We, we, yeah, we treat true. the population as though it, it's exactly the same from day to day to day to day. Like the age structure doesn't change, the fertility rates don't change. And all, the worst part about this, Roy, is that all of, all of this information is out there, but for some reason we don't take it into account. We keep treating everything as though it's a constant. And it's not. Uh, the, the, the global population, the Canadian population, is changing dramatically. It is really, uh, it really is stunning right? when you think of that. When I actually put the, and I, I, we've talked about this before, so it's not new news to me because you and I have talked about this. But when I hear it again, 
it is staggering that in such a short period of time, relative to the, to human history, in such a short period of time, the average life expectancy has been, been extended by decades. By decades, and continues to go up every year. Now, the interesting thing in terms of life expectancy is even though uh, life expectancy is going up overall, it's going up more for women. So, in fact, as the, the world gets older, the world also becomes more female. So, by the in Canada, just a couple interesting things for your for your listeners. Every year uh, when babies are born in Canada, there's always more boy babies born than girl babies. Every year, uh, the ratio is about 104 or 105 to 100. By the time we reach 40, that difference is completely eliminated. And every year after that, there's more women in the Canadian population than men. In the 1970s, there were more uh, uh, men in the Canadian population than women. Today, there's more women in the population by, than men, and that gap keeps growing every year. So not only is it um, uh, um, an, an older population, it's becoming a more female population. So, Daryl, let me ask you then, please, and we'll concentrate on next now, the book, your book. So when it comes to immigration, um, would you talk to us, please, about immigration, where immigrants are coming from, um, where they live, how they will live? I know this is in the book. And, and one line, one question was, you know, should we be building uh, more hockey arenas or basketball courts or even cricket pitches? Talk to us about that, please. Yeah, well, until 19, the 1980s, most immigrants to Canada came from, still from the United Kingdom. And that's gone through a tremendous transition over the space of the last 40 years. So now when you take a look at the top five countries that, Canada, that uh, new immigrants to Canada come from, uh, depending on the year that you look at, it's usually India at the top, followed by China or the Philippines. So people are coming from basically Pacific countries. Uh, very different backgrounds from the people who were previously uh, immigrants to this country. We're starting to see an increase of, uh, of immigrants from places like Africa, but not to the same degree as we're seeing from places like, for example, as I said before, India. The people who are coming here are moving overwhelmingly, over 90%, to major cities in the country. And when they move to the major cities, they're not moving to the downtowns. They're actually moving to the car commuting suburbs. In fact, uh, over 90% of the population growth in Canada over the last two decades has been in, in, in car commuting suburbs. A lot of this is, is new immigrants coming to the country. And so now there's, a, there's also a chapter in your book, Why Diversity is Not Our Strength. Speak to that, please. Well, this is a lot of change to ask people to go through. <laughs> Over, over a pretty short period of time. And, and the government, uh, over the space of the last, uh, uh, particularly the last three years, has really started to ramp up immigration. Now, it's one thing, because uh, normally when people talk about immigration in the country, they say, well, you know, it's a really big place, and people can spread all over the place. You know, there's a, there's a lot of room to grow. But the truth is, that's not what's happening. As I said before, most of them, most immigrants to the country, over 90%, go to our major, uh, um, major urban areas. So actually, uh, uh, that's having an impact on everything from uh, community services that are being provided to the cost of real estate. Uh, and a little of this is being taken into account because the federal government isn't actually responsible for delivering any of that in the communities that, that, uh, that new Canadians are going to. That's, it becomes a provincial and, a, and, a, uh, and a, particularly a municipal responsibility. So uh, there's a lot of pressure on places like, say, for example, the GTA. Um, you know, even in places like Hamilton, you know, lots of people that are moving into these communities, which are, uh, along with other, a few other forces, are driving up the cost of real estate. 
So how are you finding that uh, the issue of immigration is working, uh, dovetailing, working in cooperatively with the issue of um, people who are have been here for decades, for hundreds of years? Is there, is there, uh, and I'm getting at the issue of populism here. Is there a, a bridging, a further or an increasing bridging of of cultures, or is there are walls being erected? To this point, it's actually gone pretty smoothly. I mean, if you take a look at everything that's happening in the rest of uh, the developed world that's dealing with immigration, there's a lot more controversy that's associated with, a lo- by the way, a lot less immigration. So, you know, Canada's bringing in 1% or more of its population every year. Right. Places like the United States or, um, or um, you know, France, where it's a huge election issue, other countries in Western Europe are actually proportionally bringing in far fewer I- immigrants. Uh, to, to their country. So, so far it's gone pretty well. But we do know that the biggest driver of populism, nativist populism in the world today, is people's reaction to cultural change due to immigration. So it's something that can't be just assumed that you can just open up the spigots as, as wide as you want to uh, to open it and not have a political consequence. There is potential for that. So far in Canada, not, but we'll see how this goes over the longer term. Who becomes the leaders in this country? Well, that's where it gets, that's where it gets really interesting, um, because I think that there's going to be a wide diversity of leadership. But most of the leadership in the country going into the future is increasingly going to be coming from those suburban areas, because they're the population growth areas. We have a representation by population system. So those areas are going to become more important. So, you know, the, the greater Toronto area, particularly the suburbs, but as you go further west, we're, we've also got uh, increased immigration and increased population growth, you're going to see those places take on more of a role in Canadian politics. That's why, you know, the old days, you know, where the West wants in, um, when it comes to Canadian politics, federal politics, uh, well, it's not even a question these days of the West wanting in. The West is becoming more and more of a presence in our national politics, mainly because of population growth and, and redistribution of population. Okay. Now we talked about you talked about the, uh, I think I think the most um, privileged, uh, advan- advantageous time to be born or live in, uh, you know, generationally, was uh, was the baby boomers. And uh, so now the baby boomers. I think you said by twenty thirty, the youngest baby boomer is going to be sixty five. Correct. Correct. So I would probably get challenged here by listeners if I don't ask you this question: What happens with the millennials? There's an entirely different generation facing an entirely different reality. And what, what are they dealing with now? What's their future look like? Uh, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. Uh, basically, the baby boomers got all the best jobs. They've got all the best pensions. They've got all the best real estate. They've got all the investments. They hold, on, they hold the power in the country. And millennials have really struggled. To, to launch and to start their lives. So one thing, for example, you can, and this is one of the effects that we're seeing in terms of declining fertility. Uh, millennials uh, have really, really low birth rates. Why? Because they have big educations. They have big educational debt. Um, they're not, if they're getting married at all, they're not doing it till they're in their uh, late 20s, more, more likely in their early 30s. And they're not really starting their families until they get into the, their, their lower to mid 30s. So they're having smaller, uh, smaller families. All of this is a product of the fact that the sort of grinding reality, economic realities that, 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 that face millennials. So uh, what the effect of that is, is, is 
as I said before, the only way our population goes is due to immigration, mainly because the millennial population, which should be part of the population that's driving um, a population growth in this country, just isn't. So a very different country and a very different world in the next uh, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, yes? Yeah, and I think we've got to start getting ready for it. That's what uh, John Ibbotson and I were writing about in the Global Mail. Yeah. I mean, uh, two, two, 2030 is the decade in which all of the baby boom is going to be going uh, through some form of work transition. And by the 2040s, it's going to be the last decade of the baby boom when okay. they leave this mortal coil. And that's when the population is going to start to decline. And how far down it goes, nobody knows. Okay. I don't like hearing that. I'm a boomer. So. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.